Hello, everybody. Good to see everybody in the room here. Good to have everybody we can't see uh, joining us online. And I just want to say welcome to all of you, especially if you're here visiting for the first time or if you're online visiting for the first time. We're really glad that you're here. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Greg Boyd. I'm senior pastor here at the church and uh, teaching pastor. And we're having a good time. Uh, it's been a, a, a fun morning. I want to start by uh, thanking Dan Kent for the incredible, incredible job he did last week. <laughs> yeah, isn't that guy something? Uh, I had this ongoing respiratory deal. I thought I was done with it, and then it came back and hit me again, uh, and kind of at the last minute last week. So Dan only had like a day to prepare that message, uh, and uh, man, he just delivered it. Uh, it was also a very vulnerable message. I mean, he talked about, you know, how he was kind of a late bloomer, and, and there was a point where he felt like he was, you know, the only tree in the forest that didn't have any bark. Uh, if, if, you know what I'm saying? So I, I just want to tell Dan, you know, that, that um, Dan, if you're listening here, and I, I know you are, that be patient, it will come eventually, okay? <laughs> You'll get your bar. It just takes some of you. <laughs> okay. okay, if you weren't here last week, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about, that's okay. Uh, but you want to tune in that message. It was really a good message. Basically saying, don't act like baboons, okay? Because when we judge, that's what we're acting like. So uh, we're in this series here. Oh, yeah, and uh, I want to re- re- reiterate what, what Rob said about this Q&A. Um, uh, when, as I'm going through this, if you have questions that come up or all throughout the week, send, send those in. Uh, now, we usually we have a Q&A at the end of a series. And um, we planned on ending the series next week. But this series has not ended. <laughs> and so, so we're going to have the Q&A because we have everyone's schedule and you can't just you know, reschedule everything. Uh, and then based on what some of the questions are, we'll, we'll have a couple more messages. Um, uh, that will follow this. Because this is all important. Uh, we, it, it's, it's, we're calling this series cross-examination. Uh, in part because, though we don't usually realize it, when we look at people, we usually are examining them. We have filters. And the filters, and we're all conditioned this way, we have hierarchies of values, and we tend to see the world through that hierarchy of values, and we rate people on that basis. There's this examination that goes on. But see, when you know who you are in Christ, you know who Christ is and what he's done for us, then all hierarchies are done away. And, and, and we are called to see everybody, including ourselves, as we are in light of the cross, where God says you have unsurpassable worth because he was willing to pay an unsurpassable price for us. And so the only examination we do is the cross. We're calling this cross examination, looking at the first three verses of uh, uh, Matthew chapter 7, which I'll get to uh, later on in this message. So we spent the first three weeks just talking about the centrality of love. And we saw there that, that um, 1 Corinthians 13 pretty much sums it all up. You, you, if you don't have love, you don't have nothing from a kingdom perspective. You can have you know, all the gifts in the world be so impressive and build great churches and do miracles and all the rest, but if it's not done out of love for the purpose of furthering love, it's a noisy gong. Paul says. It's just irritating religious noise. So love is the only thing that gives kingdom value to anything that we do. Like Paul said, do everything in love. 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Do everything in love. Because that's the only thing that makes it a, gives it any kind of kingdom value. And the only thing we take with us out of this world is the love that we've cultivated. That love is the only thing that's eternal. And so, because um, everything that's not of love will be purged from us. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3. So, so this is the bullseye. This is everything. This is the sine qua non of the Christian faith. That without which nothing has any kind of value. Um, 
So we, we spent three weeks on the centrality of love, because until we understand just how all-important love is, we're never going to appreciate how wrong judgment is. Because judgment, we'll see here, is the antithesis of love. So Dan started us then, after we laid the foundation of love, Dan started us on talking about judgment last week. He laid a great foundation for it. And so what I want to do this morning, and I'll pick this up again after the Q&A, is to go to Genesis 3, where it's the biblical account of how everything went wrong. We ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And... Um, well, I, I, we'll see here that this passage, Genesis 3, Genesis 3 is one of these passages that it feels like every time I read it, it has something new to offer. It's just so packed with profound insight. Certain passages of Scripture are like that. I, I, the book of Job is like that for me. I, it, just, it, it strikes me as self-evidently divinely inspired because it's packed with so much uh, divine wisdom. Uh, Genesis 3 is, is, you know, the story of Adam and Eve and, and the serpent and all the rest. And in, in evangelical circles, there's a big debate about you know, how literal is this to be taken? Uh, how does this relate to history? Uh, is, it, is it in part mythological? A big, big debate over that. And back when I was a young evangelical and knew everything, I, I, I felt like orthodoxy itself hung in the balance on making sure that you be the literal Adam, literal Eve, literal fruit, and all the rest. But now that I'm old, and I realize I don't know much of anything, that whole debate strikes me, this is my opinion, it just strikes me as a major distraction. Um, it almost feels like it, it cheapens the text. Now, you're free, free to disagree with that. You may think it's very important. That's fine. But from my perspective, it's, it, it seems to cheapen the text. Um, I just see it as, as, as a distraction. It seems to me that rather than taking the, the Bible and, and, and submitting it to our questions... And submitting it to our categories, demanding that it fits in, it addresses our concerns. Instead of doing that, maybe we ought to submit ourselves to the text. And just let the text be the text and let it interrogate us. Instead of interrogating the text, let the text interrogate us. Because this text says so much about us and about the world that we live in. It's not just a story about once upon a time. It's a paradigmatic story about what is true of all of us. The struggles that we all go through. And... Um, Karl Barth said this. He said, when you read the Bible as God's word, which is different than reading it as a, uh, a critical scholar and asking questions about historicity or whatever, when you just read it as God's word, the, only way, to, the only, only way to read it as God's word is to let God's word read you. So when you read the Bible as God's word, let God's word read you. It, it reads us. It interprets us. It reveals where we're at to ourselves in relationship to God. So I'm just going to scratch the surface this morning on Genesis 3. I want to talk about the two trees that were in the garden. And so I'm going to title this message, A Tale of Two Trees. I'll read a verse uh, from chapter 2, which sets it up, and then read the first eight verses of Genesis 3. Genesis 2.9. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's two trees in the midst of the garden. And that term midst can mean in the middle of the garden. In fact, that's how it's translated in the next chapter, as one I'll see. Genesis 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Don't you want that? So then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Lord, open our eyes in the right way to see truth, to receive truth, to be liberated by truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So there's two trees in the middle of the garden. There's a tree of the of life. And then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they're in the center of the garden, the Garden of Eden. And one way you can apply that is simply this. The author is saying that life as God intends it, life in paradise, life in Eden, revolves around two things. We have to trust God for the provision of life. That's what the tree of life is about. Trust God for the fullness of life. Because he's the only one that can give us that. But we also then have to honor the prohibition, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I, I take this to be kind of God's loving no trespassing sign. Here's the boundaries, humans. Be like me in how you love, but don't try to be like me in what you think you know. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, why is this forbidden tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Realize that, that we're talking here about the foundational sin of the Bible. And there's a sense in which this, this sin is, is uh, foundational to all other sin. So this must be something really, really bad, something terrible. The original sin of the Bible. So why is it called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Wouldn't you think it'd be called the tree of debauchery or the tree of greed or the tree of lust or the tree of power or the tree of grotesque heresy? Something really bad. Today we might say the tree of belonging to the wrong political party. You know, something really, truly awful. Some people treat it like that. So but why is it called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Isn't knowing good and evil good? In fact, we, we read this in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 5. The author says, solid food, talking about spiritual food here, is for the mature, for those who fa whose faculties have been trained by practice to distinguish good and evil. So here, being able to distinguish between good and evil is a sign of maturity. So why then is this tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? All right. To, to, to begin to answer this question, I want to jump forward into the New Testament, make some observations here, and then we'll come back to this, this tree in a little bit. But in Greek, the, 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 word that's, the, the root word that's translated as judgment can also be translated as discernment. The word is, is, is krino. And it has some variations, depending on what prefixes you put it in the New Testament. But the basic word means to separate, to distinguish. We get the word critic from it. Critic, crino, critic. Uh, a, a movie critic is someone who distinguishes for us between good and bad movies. A food critic is someone who distinguishes between good and bad food. So critics have a role here. When we separate things, when we apply crino to things, separate them like this, that is a good and necessary kind of judgment. And I like to call that, just to keep things clear, discernment. 
And we all need to have discernment. You can't live life without discerning things. Am I safe or not? Do I trust this auto dealer? Uh, to, you know, is he telling me the truth about this car? Uh, do I, would I trust this person to babysit my kids? Um, am, I, am I safe in this crowd right now? Is this person really a good influence on me? Is this attitude a kingdom attitude or not? Is this behavior a kingdom behavior or not? Uh, is, is this belief system helpful or harmful? Is that a political opinion when I agree with or disagree with? That's all discernment, and that's good and necessary. You have to have that. You're, you're distinguishing things. Judgment is very different. Even though it has the same root word, the kind of judgment that's prohibited is very different from this. Because in judging people, we don't separate things, we separate people. More specifically, we separate ourselves from another and we place ourselves above them and look down on them. That's the essence of judgment. There's a looking down on. In fact, the word that's usually used of judgment in the New Testament, um, when uh, uh, it, it's the, the negative kind of judgment that we're not supposed to be doing, it's, it, it's catachrino. There's that word crino, but the prefix kata is attached to it. And kata has a connotation of downward. So you're a critic downward. You're criticizing someone downward. You're looking down on them while you're separating yourself from them. And the reason we do that is because we feed off the contrast. We compare ourselves favorably with another, and we feed off the contrast. It's like Dan said last week. Um, you know... All throughout nature, you find these hierarchies. Uh, the baboons have their kind of hierarchy. And now humans, when we act like baboons, we have our hierarchy. And, and we buy the lie that you can rate people in terms of their worth based on this value system, this hierarchy of values. And when you buy into that system, then it'll become imperative for you to be as high on that hierarchy as you can get, just like the baboons. And to get up there, you got to knock some people down, just like the baboons. And so it's a kind of a king of the hill game when you buy into any kind of value hierarchy and you think humans can be rated on that. And no one wants to be the runt that gets left off. Everyone wants to be the king that's at the top and gets praised. And this is what we're doing when, 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 when we judge people. Whether we do it in the privacy of our mind, which we're, where most judgments happen, though we're not aware of them because we, we do it so instinctively, but whether it's in our mind or whether we're doing it with other people, there's a looking downward going on here because we're feeding off the contrast. Imagine a group of people who are judging another group of people or another person in their absence. If you have trouble imagining a group of people gossiping about somebody, this is what the Bible calls gossip and slander. Oh, by the way, I looked this up this week. Gossip, slander, verbal judgments where you're judging, looking down on another, slandering another. That is prohibited 27 times in the New Testament. Now, I know Christians tend to think that gossip is like one of those minor sins. You know, God understands that. The major sins are the ones we go after. But, folks, 27 times we have to watch our tongues. And we have to watch our inner tongue in our, in our head. It's a, gossip slander is a form of judgment. So imagine a group of people who are doing this. And if you can't imagine a group of people, then A, you have very good friends because you're not gossiping. But B, just imagine cable news because this is what cable news is really all about. You tune into one station, and, and it, it's all about those, the problems with America. It's those blankety-blank, corrupt, liberal, anti-American, socialistic Democrats. And you tune to the other station, and the problem with America is those corrupt, conniving, bought-off, terrible Republicans. And it goes on and on and on and on. And the people who are espousing this are sincere. They believe this. They're, they're good, decent people. But what's going on here 
is what the Bible would call slander. They're bad-mouthing other people. And why are they bad-mouthing other people? Let's look at this. Are, are they trying to change the opinions of the people they're talking about? No. If you're genuinely trying to change the opinions of someone that, that your opponent, you wouldn't be calling them the names that you're calling them. You'd be trying to influence them in a positive way. And besides, they know that the people who tune in to watch them are the ones who already agree with the perspective that they're offering. On both sides, left and right, if, if they were forced to watch the other side's news stations, they'd spend the whole night swearing. Am I wrong? Especially if, they had, if they're passionate about their political opinions, they'd be so ticked off. That's why they don't watch that station. So they're preaching to the choir, for the most part. And why are they preaching to the choir? And why is the choir tuning in? Well, as, 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 here's the thing. We all like it when our beliefs get confirmed. And, and we all hate it when our beliefs get confronted. When, when, in fact, neuroscience supports this now. They've done MRIs on folks, uh, these brain scans. And when people are presented with alleged facts that agree with the person's strongly held beliefs, their pleasure centers of the brain get activated. But when they are presented alleged facts that disagree with the beliefs that they hold strongly, their amygdala gets activated. And that's, that's your fight-or-flight reflex. You get angry. And whether your pleasure centers are getting activated or your amygdala is getting activated, either way, your prefrontal lobe cortex isn't doing very much at all. It shuts almost completely down. And that's where we do all of our abstract reasoning. So whatever else is going on as we're watching cable news, one thing is not going on, and that is clear thinking. A lot of emotion going on. And see, as, as, as a person, as you constantly get your beliefs, you're in a group, your beliefs are always getting confirmed, your rightness and their wrongness, and, and pleasure centers are getting activated. What that does is it develops a kind of a tribal identity, a, tri a sense of usness. We are the ones who understand. They don't get it. We're the ones who stand for truth. They're, they just lie. We're the ones who are honest, but they're just corrupt. We stand for justice, but they're being bought off. Us, yay, them, boo. And you hear that enough, and it, it gives you a buzz. What we're getting, I mean, you're getting some news there too, but you're getting the news from a particular angle, and it's the angle that you like, and we get a buzz off of that. We feel better about ourselves because we're part of the right team. We're getting life from it. What's really going on here, folks? Is that we are ascribing worth to ourselves at cost to another. That's the essence of judgment. Look down on to feed off the contrast. And they have less worth. That's why we badmouth them. Therefore, we have more worth. And one of the things they enjoy doing the most is helping each other get enraged by how bad they are, which is a, just a reverse way of celebrating how good we are. That's why we can spot the badness. When we judge, and see, this is the opposite of love. Opposite of love. Love, we've seen this. From 1 John 3.16, love is defined by the cross. And on the cross, God ascribes unsurpassable worth to us, and that's why he's willing to pay an unsurpassable price for us. He says, you are worth this. That's what love does. Ascribes worth to another at cost to yourself. Judgment is the opposite. Judgment ascribes worth to yourself at cost to another. So when we judge, when we look down on someone, we're actually acting like vampires, uh, last week, Dan said, if you judge, you're, you're acting like a baboon. Well, I'll, I'll up the ante. You're acting like a vampire. Uh, except that, that we don't suck blood from people. 
but we suck off their worth. We're feeding off their worth. When we judge another, we're like parasites. We're getting full at their expense. And we're doing it because we like the buzz. It gives us this vampire buzz. And this is why the tree is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the tree of judgment. Uh, this term, the knowledge of good and evil, it's, it's not just knowing about good or evil. In the ancient Near Eastern context, this phrase was usually applied to the, the king alone and the gods. And in the ancient Near East, those are kind of two sides of the same coin because uh, the king mediated everything about the gods to the people. So the king was the law. And he was considered the only one who knows good or evil because he gets to define good or evil. He is the law. So if he says it's good, it's good for everybody. If he says it's evil, it's evil for everybody. He alone has the knowledge of good and evil. So what the author's saying here is when we eat from this forbidden tree, when we violate God's loving no trespassing sign, Oh, it deceives us into thinking that we're kings. In fact, it deceives us into thinking that we're God, because ultimately only God knows good or evil. And that's exactly what the serpent said. To this degree, he was telling the truth. You will be like God, knowing good or evil. That's, that's how you're going to think about yourself. It deceives us into thinking that we have the right and, 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 the, and, and the capacity to look down on others, to judge others. We know what is good. We know what is evil. So we pr make pronouncements. That is good, and that is evil, and we do it instinctively, and we do it all the time. It's the foundational sin of the Bible because it undermines the foundational mandate of the Bible. Our most important task in life is to, is, is, is to participate in the love of God by loving God, by loving ourselves, by loving our neighbors as ourselves, and by loving the earth and the, and, and the animal kingdom. Uh, that's our, our first mandate. Judgment undermines all that. It makes it impossible. You can't be ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself if at the same time you're ascribing worth to yourself at cost to the other. Judgment and love are antithetical to us. They're not antithetical, antithetical for God, but for us they're antithetical. So this attitude here, um, is, it's, 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 we think that we're kings. And, and uh, we make pronouncements on whatever we see. We evaluate, we examine, and we rate. So life in Eden revolves around two things, trusting God for the provision of life and honoring God's prohibition. Uh, trusting God for, for life means that we uh, get all of our core worth and our need for feeling significant and special and loved and secure. We get that from our relationship with God because he says you have unsurpassable worth. We trust God for the provision of life. But to do that, we've got to honor the prohibition, not to play God by judging others. Um, God is saying to us, be in my image by, in how you love. Be in my image on, 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 on the way you love one another. But don't try to be like me in terms of what you think you know. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, given how this is the foundational sin of the Bible, it's not surprising that you find a lot about judgment in the New Testament. Though, I think most people don't realize that. Uh, probably didn't realize there's 27 verses on just ju verbal judging alone. But there's a sermon of other verses that prohibit judgment. I had planned on giving six today. Given the time, I will give you one. Uh, I, I, I will, just look at the verse that launched the whole series. Matthew chapter 7, uh, 1 through 3. And uh, yeah, that will take us to the end, I think. And then when we come back after the Q&A, we'll look at the other verses. Here's what Jesus says. He says, do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. 
Why do you seek the speck in your neighbor's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? Okay, so what's going on here? First, Jesus says, hey, if you don't want to be judged, whether it's by other humans or being judged by God, you don't want to be judged on the judgment day, it's simple. Just then don't judge. Because Jesus says, the judgment you give is the judgment you're going to get. Your judgments, you'll be judged by your own judging. How's that? In fact, that's how the Bible talks about sin all the time. There's an organic relationship between sin and punishment. Uh, God doesn't have to impose a sentence. The punishment for sin is built into the sin itself. So you have this refrain going on throughout the whole Bible about how sin ricochets back on your head. The violence you intend for another comes back on you. And it, it, there's this boomerang effect. And that, Jesus is here applying it to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to the foundational sin of the Bible. If you, if you judge, it's going to come back on you. So if you don't want to judge, then just learn how not to judge. And then um, he says this. To, to, to get us free from the, our addiction to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Jesus says do the opposite. When we judge another, what always happens is we minimize or ignore completely our own faults, and we maximize the faults of another. Mine are a little minor understandable or things, but they have the deal breaker sins, the real big ones. Well, Jesus says, you know what, do the opposite of that. Whatever you think you see in another, whatever fault you think you see in another, consider that a mere dust particle compared to the log of sin in your own eye. Um, consider your own sin like a million times worse because there's a million specks of dust particles in a log, I'm imagining. Uh, There's it, it, some hyperbole going on here, but he's saying do the opposite of this. Maximize your own and minimize theirs. Paul does the same thing. In 1 Timothy, he says this. He says, here's a saying. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's the saying that's worthy of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now, Paul isn't here, and Jesus isn't here, saying that we should buy into this kind of false piety where you just you think that you're praising God by loathing yourself and, and, and flogging yourself. And you know, people who are like, oh, there's nothing good in me at all. I'm altogether worthless. Oh, that God would save a scum like me and, and all the rest. Knock it off. Look, at you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, and, and, and Jesus Christ thought you have unsurpassable worth. You're not complimenting God by saying you're worthless. You're just disagreeing with God, okay? So you've got unsurpassable worth. Accept that. But what Paul and Jesus are giving us here is, is an attitude of utter, complete humility. Complete humility. Where we put ourselves at the bottom. Because if you put yourself at the bottom, it's impossible to look down. That's why Jesus is doing it. Make it impossible for you to judge anybody. You consider your sin to be the worst. You're the worst of sinners. It's an attitude of complete humility. Because if you're at the bottom, you cannot look up or can't, can't look down. You can only look up. Uh, and so, and, and, and so here in, 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 in the kingdom, our, our stance has got to be this one, that Jesus Christ is, is he, he saved us and redeemed us, and, and each one of us is the worst of sinners, so we're never in a position to look down on anybody. And this has got to really distinguish the kingdom community from all other kind of communities. Because most human communities, every culture has a ranking system, as Dad pointed out last week, a, a hierarchy. And groups unite around their claim to be at the top of the hierarchy. There's always something, some, some boast, some, we are the people who, and I'll fill in the blank, and since we are the people who have it at the top of the hierarchy, those who disagree with us, well, they're, they're less than. There's, there's an us-them-ness built into the essence of human fallen communities, but in the kingdom it cannot be so. 
And to some degree, human communities are defined by us versus them. To some degree, they're defined by who they look down on. But in the kingdom, there's no looking down on. Uh, we make no claim to superiority. None at all. And this is really clear in the New Testament. Paul, a number of times, says things like this in Galatians uh, uh, 6. He says, uh, the, May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says this all the time. I, I, I'm not going to boast about the, the heritage I have, about the accomplishments I have, about the things that I've done. I, I, no, I'm the worst of sinners. The only boast I have is I know Jesus Christ crucified, hallelujah. And by means of Jesus Christ, the world's been crucified to me and I to the world. He's been set free. Uh, that's the only claim we make. Our, our boast is not in ourselves. Our boast is in Jesus Christ. Now, we believe certain things are true, and not everyone agrees with that. And we believe in certain practices, and not everyone practices those. And that's okay. That's us discerning truth. You've got to call the shots as you see them. Here's how I see the truth. I'm doing that every Sunday here. Um, but that's discernment. What we're never allowed to do is feed off the contrast. Oh, we're the ones who got it right. All right. You know, look at I want to feel, you want to feel good about yourself. You want to feel like you've got worth. You want to feel like your life's significant, that you're special, that you're loved, and you're secure in that. That's what it is to get your life from Christ. All right? But, but see, we want all of that, but I don't want to have that because I think I belong to the community that believes all the right things, and I think I believe the, in the community that, that, that does all the right practices as opposed to those who get it wrong. I don't want to feed off of you, and I don't want to feed off the people we contrast with. I want to give all my life and worth and significance and security from Jesus Christ crucified. Hallelujah. Our one source of life. Amen? Amen. And here's the thing, the beautiful thing, is if you're getting all your life from Christ, uh, you know, the, the core sense of worth and the need to be loved and all the rest, if that's being met, so that now you can overflow, because life in Eden is meant to, it's, it's meant to be, be God pouring into us and we overflow towards others. And if you're getting that life from Christ... You don't need to try to get it from somebody by comparing yourself or contrasting yourself to anybody. Look, I know who I am in Christ. I don't need to get my worth by being better than anybody. I, 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 I'm loved with an everlasting love. I'm blessed with every spiritual blessing in, in Christ Jesus. I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places, far above all principalities and powers. I got the Holy Spirit packed into me. I got the joy and the love of the Holy Ghost filling my body. What would I need to contrast with? I got all the worth I could possibly have. Why would I try to be sucking worth off of something else? I don't need to be a parasite. You're freed from your vampire nature, praise God, when you're getting all your worth and all your significance from Jesus Christ. We are the people who know Christ. We don't brag about knowing him. We just brag about Christ. And we confess that we are all broken. In fact, we confess that we're all the worst of sinners. We're all broken. And see, in the kingdom, since we've collapsed all hierarchies, there's no point, no interest at all in trying to argue or debate whose brokenness is more broken than who. What a dumb, baboon, vampire game. No, you're broken. Full stop. Jesus Christ saves you. Full stop. That's all we've got to say. Hallelujah. Get freed from that vampire, baboon nonsense. Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So life is a tale of two trees. It's a tale of trusting God for life and honoring God's prohibition. Leave all judgment to God. It's a refrain that happens over and over again throughout the Bible. Leave all judgment to God. He'll take care of it at the end. Our job is just to love the way God has loved us. Full stop. That's it. So I want to end with the same, uh, same way that Dan ended his message last week. Same way I ended the, ended the two messages before that. I want to do it by talking about gap. Let's go over gap one more time. 
You guys, I'm feeling this gap stuff. Yeah, Samuel here. I see. Wave your hand, Samuel. This is Samuel. It's his first time at the church. Say hi, Samuel. Yeah. You know, he has a, a shirt that says gap on it. I love it. He, he, man, you talk about catching on quickly, dude. You got it. He, he got it down. Uh, yeah, so GAP is our acronym, uh, and, and it's an acronym for three practices that I'm really encouraging us to, be, to, to all get involved in. I, I want you to take the GAP challenge, all right? Um, and and uh, uh, it, it, see, these practices are, acronym is GAP because they fill in the gap between where we presently are in terms of our character development and where God knows we can be and wants us to be, and where we shall be at the end. Okay, this is, this is, we'll fill it in. So, the G stands for get all your life from Christ. It's an endless refrain around here, because everything in the kingdom hangs on this. Now, there's, there's no one way to do this. Everyone's wired a little differently, so to some degree, you have to find how to tap into this life from Christ. Um, and that's part of what it is to seek God. Seek out different ways. Try different things. See what works for you. I always recommend strongly imaginative prayer. Where you just spend time, where you surrender your imagination to the Holy Spirit and say, bring me Jesus, because that's his job. He's to point us to Jesus. And, and, and you then see and hear and sense and feel, however you do imagination in your head, uh, you, you, you experience the truth of what the Bible says about you, but now you see and hear Jesus saying it to you. And, and that is just so life-giving. What it is to get life from Christ, it means we have to set aside some time where we just drink deeply from the wellspring of God's infinite love. That's what we were created to do. That... The love of God is like air is to lungs. The love of God is to our soul what air is to our lungs. We, it's what we desperately need. And so find ways of experiencing the truth of who you are in Christ. All the things that you know in your head need to become experienced realities in your heart. But imaginative prayer isn't the only way to do it. Um, you know, I, I have shared two weeks ago that I have, for the last nine months, just really felt called to go on these long walks, prayer walks. And... and uh, um, I, I, I just spend time meditating. I'm aware that I try to stay in the present moment, and I'm aware that I'm always, in him I live and move and have my being. I'm always walking in the presence of God's love. I'm swimming through an ocean of God's love. And just meditating on truth has a way of saturating your soul with it. I don't know, it's just going over and over again. It just saturates it, or it marinates it, or how, I don't know, whatever the metaphor would be. But, but there's times where, as I'm doing this, um, where I, I just am feeling a total contentment. A total at peace. Um, and that's what happens when you're really getting all your life from Christ and, and you know that you're loved. And so just meditating on the truth, contemplative prayer uh, is another way. Part of seeking God is seeking out ways that work for you to tap into this life. But it's so important that we do. Paul says that, that everything we do is to be compelled by the love of God. It, it, it's when we have this beautiful vision of God and experience of his love that we're motivated now to love others be involved in ministry, to care about the world, and all the rest. So G, get all your life from Christ. A, oh, by the way, I have a book on imaginative prayer if you want to find out more about that. It's called Seeing is Believing. And I just talk about uh, imaginative prayer and the church tradition and the, and, and the role that it's played in, in my life. You might want to check that out. A stands for agree with God about everyone's unsurpassable worth. Okay, so G was about trusting God's provision of life. A, agreeing with God, this is about honoring God's prohibition. Because to agree with God about everyone's unsurpassable worth means you're not allowed to judge them. You have to collapse judgments in order to do that. Uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, um, so I, I, I encourage us to commit to this. 
And the hardest thing is to remember to do it. And so if you put post-it notes on your car or wherever it is, to remember that throughout the day, your job is to be loving people, which is agreeing with God about their unsurpassable worth. Think about it this way. Love is a verb. If I say I love you, that's a verb. I'm doing something. So Paul says do everything in love. He also says that, that we're to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. That means we've got to be living in a verb. There's something we need to be doing a lot that other people aren't doing. In fact, I submit to you that this is, I think, the most distinctive kingdom activity that would distinguish us from non-kingdom people is that there's a secret thing that we're doing all the time, and that is we're loving people. And so we're, you're walking down the street or driving down the street or going to the grocery store, whatever you're doing, develop the habit of just agreeing with God about that person and that person. Lord, that person has unsurpassable worth. Bless them. Lord, call, help them to flourish. I agree, they have unsurpassable And just be loving on them throughout the day. There's a verb. And see, we do the verb of love in order to become the noun that is love. We become loving people by constantly practicing the verb. And when we become, when, once we get to the place where, where we're a noun, now we're like God. We're, we have the character of God. God's nature is, he loves because he is loving. He does, love isn't just something he does, it's who he is. And our, the goal for our life is, to, is, is just that, to become to become the love that we've chosen over and over and over again. But folks, this takes discipline. It takes a lot of discipline. And, and we need to expect this because Paul said, we saw this two weeks ago, he compares the Christian life to an athlete in training. It's arduous discipline, he says. So remember this. It doesn't cost you much in the moment. It just costs you some, a little bit of attention. And a little bit of, you know, just, it costs you something. You're just, but you're ascribing worse to them or, or worth to them at cost to yourself. And as you're doing that, it's impossible to be judging them. Now, if you commit to doing this, and please commit to doing this, take off the gap challenge. If you commit to doing this, you will bump into, I guarantee you, you'll bump into all the garbage in your head. And, and probably, unless you've been really disciplined for quite a while at getting the garbage out of your head, there's probably quite a bit of garbage in your head. By garbage, I mean gossip. Our brains are just chatterboxes. And, and, and we need to wake up to this reality that Part of what our brain's doing is always examining people. Approve, disapprove, like, dislike. Blah, blah, blah. There's always this gossip column going on in our head. So if you commit to loving folks, you're going to start noticing all the gossip stuff in your head. When you notice that, don't get angry. Don't get mad. Don't, don't judge yourself. Uh, that's just more judgment going on. We'll see in two weeks, Paul says, I don't even judge myself. I let Christ do that. Um, so, so don't judge yourself. Don't get mad. Oh, I'm so stupid. I'm such a judger. I can't count. No, you're just doing more judgment. Rather, now get this. This is, this is worth the price of admission right here. Retool that fault of yours. Put it to it. What your brain intends for evil, you use for good. Um, let it serve as a reminder of what your job is. When you catch yourself thinking a negative thought about anybody, let it, your job is to reprogram this, this organic computer that's called our brain. And so reprogram it, assign it a task. You will remind me of what my job description is, which is to not judge, but rather to love, to love the way God loves. And, and folks, this works. Uh, I've, been, I've been practicing this for over 20 years. And as a sign of how polluted my brain was is that I still catch myself regularly with, the, with negative judgments of people. And, but when I do, this happened just two days ago, actually, um, when I noticed that, oh, I had a negative thought, it just reminds me of what my job is. And so then I start blessing her. And uh, you, know, you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
So throughout the day, be verbing love towards people. Whoever you think about, whoever you encounter, as much as possible, be loving on them. And then thirdly is pray for your enemies. And I'll just say this, that you know, the, I hadn't noticed this ever before, but enemies is, are the only group that I know about that Jesus commands us to pray for. He doesn't say pray for the Samaritans or pray for the Romans. or what. Pray for your enemies. And I think he specifies this group because this is the hardest group to pray for. In fact, loving enemies is a muscle that we hardly ever flex. In fact, loving enemies is a muscle which, at least in American culture, in our polarized times, we only, not only don't flex it, but some groups prohibit flexing it. How dare you care about the enemy? Your only job is to hate the enemy. We're conditioned to hate enemies, which is all the more important, reason why it's so important that we, we are a people who pray for our enemies. Take the three to five people that you have the hardest time loving, the ones who most tick you off, the ones you most disagree with, and commit to praying for them until God gives you a new one, and then maybe they drop off. But, and that, that, that includes agreeing with God about their unsurpassable worth, uh, and ascribing unsurpassable worth to them, but then also praying for their flourishing. You don't have to pray that their, their views get, get, get widely held, because maybe you hate their views. But practice loving your enemies. One good way of doing this, I found, is watch the news station that makes you mad once in a while. Really, and, 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 and practice loving them. It's okay for you to disagree, and disagree passionately. That's discernment. You discern things very differently from them. You're allowed to do that, but you're not allowed to feed off the contrast. Uh, and, 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 and you're not allowed to ever not love them. And so more important than being right over and against them is that you're loving them, even though you think that they're wrong. And just practice loving them. Pray blessing on them. It really is challenging, and it works. It's a muscle we got to flex. It's no different than our physical bodies. You want to get healthy, you got to flex your muscles. You got to get in there. You got to work out. Same thing with our soul. Uh, it's not easy. But Jesus said, didn't say it was going to be easy. He said it's going to be hard work. Paul said it's going to be hard work. And it is. This is the work. Gap. Accept the gap challenge. Okay. Um, on Tuesdays, we've got the MuseCast at 4 o'clock. Go deeper with the sermon by tuning in on that. We've got gathering groups where you can get together and chat with other Woodland Hills folks, sometimes from around the globe, uh, uh, about the sermon topic and see where the conversation goes. Um, if you are in need of prayer, you can get that online, or we have it up front here in the auditorium. I encourage you to take advantage of that. And if you're going to be here next Sunday and you have children, uh, let us know ahead of time so that we can have enough children's workers to take care of them. God bless you guys. Get all your life from Christ. Agree with God about every person you see. They have unsurpassable worth. And pray for your enemies. Get out of here. Love on the world. God bless.